gospel here with us this morning. As we get near the end of our summer-long study in the book of Nehemiah, it's been a great time of study for me and hopefully has been an enriching experience for you as well. Now, I open this morning with a question. I'm curious, what is your favorite season of the year? So just really simple, raise your hand as I call them out. Who likes winter the best? Raise your hand. I'm not raising my hand. It's not bad. I know my wife was going to say that. She loves it cold. How about spring? Who loves the spring? Raise your hand. Okay, like that's like three each. Okay, we'll see if we can get it better. How about summer? Who likes summer the best? Uh-oh, what's happening here? How about fall? Raise your hand. Wow, look at that. Like 90% of the people. I love fall too. It is my favorite season. You've got... Uh, Football. I used to be addicted to sports. I remember October having all four professional sports at one time. Uh, of course, the holidays, Halloween, Thanksgiving, Christmas anticipation, and oh yes, my birthday. Well, we're going to start off <laughs> by looking at um, this slide. is going to help us review where we've been last week and this week. Because the Jews love the fall as well. Because the month of Tishri was their, their best month. That's when a lot of their festivals and holidays fell, as you can see on the screen. And so I, by way of review, let's just go through and, and be reminded of what took place during this great month. It was kind of the end of September, beginning of October. So the fall, you'll see the, the Feast of Trumpets. That where we, that's where we were last week at the beginning of Nehemiah chapter 8. You might know that passage. If you weren't with us, where uh, Ezra reads from the book of the law, that was the Feast of Trumpets. Uh, then the second day, which isn't a holiday, but we saw last week the leaders returned the very next day to go deeper into the Word of God with Ezra, uh, and it was incredible to see that. Now, Nehemiah doesn't cover this, but just so you know, the 10th of Tishri is the Day of Atonement, Yom, Yom Kippur, a very important holiday in, in the Jewish calendar. And then last week, we ended our time by looking at the Feast of Tabernacles. This is one of the three great holidays on the Jewish calendar, Passover, Pentecost, and the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles. And that brings us to today, the 24th day, which is really where Ezra and Nehemiah have been pushing towards the entire time, this great renewal of the people of God to God spiritually, all climaxing in this this incredible time covered in, in chapter 8 and chapter 9 and chapter 10, the month of Tishri. And so you'll see there up on that slide, the Feast of Tabernacles ends the 22nd day, and today we'll begin on the 24th, two days later, this time of renewal, of repentance, of confession, and covenant uh, renewal. Now, you'll see the title screen. You can put the title screen back up there. The theme of this entire study in Nehemiah has been restoration restoration. And the reason is because of today's passage, because of what we're going to see. But if renewal and restoration is so needed, we also need to understand the bad news. Just like with the gospel, we call the gospel the good news. But if we fail to understand the bad news of our sin and our depravity, the good news won't make sense. In the same way, in order for us to appreciate this work of, of the Jewish leaders and this work of God to renew his people in our passage today, we have to understand what happened. And the reality is the house broke down. The house broke down. The, the faithfulness of the people was just the opposite before captivity. It was unfaithfulness. God judged them and literally vomited them out of the promised land into captivity, into slavery. And the question is why? Now, Let's talk about covenants. The best way to understand the Old and New Testament, the Bible, 
is understanding all of the covenants or promises that God makes to his covenant people. There's even one at the very beginning with Adam and Eve, one they violated, which is why we're in the mess we are today. But I'm only going to talk about two because two covenants are really at play in today's passage. They form the background, and if you don't know anything about them, today's sermon won't make as much sense. And the first one is the Abrahamic covenant. Abrahamic covenant. This was the very first Jew. God makes a covenant with Abraham, and we've talked about it before. It was a covenant of grace, a covenant of grace. It was, it was binding only on God. You might remember the animal halves being cut in half in Genesis 15. Only God went through and cut that covenant. It was a promise of grace that regardless of Israel's behavior, God would fulfill the promises to bless this man with many, many descendants. And if you're a Christian today, you're actually a spiritual descendant of Abraham and part of that promise in Genesis chapter 12, covenant of grace. And then there's the Mosaic covenant. You all know the Ten Commandments, the law. The Mosaic covenant was built upon the foundation of the Abrahamic covenant. It was bilateral. It was binding on both God and the people. So basically, if the people obeyed God's law and walked with him, he would continue to bless them in the land and all that they did. They would have nothing to worry about. But if they violated the law, went after other gods, and as we'll see in the text today, put God's law behind their back, God would judge them and curse them, and his wrath would be poured out. And so that building of Israel was essentially destroyed. And today what we're seeing is a new Israel in a way. We're seeing, after a second exodus, we're seeing a a new time. You could almost compare this to the Jews before Mount Sinai. That's what's happening here. It's a second affirmation of the law of God. They're rebuilding the building. But the only reason is because of that first covenant of grace, the Abrahamic covenant. If we didn't have the Abrahamic covenant, we wouldn't be here right now, and this passage wouldn't have happened. I I tried to think of several illustrations to illustrate it, so this will help those of you who are younger than me, those of you who are older, ask your children later or the young folks. But who has played Mario Kart? I love Mario Kart. We just played it yesterday. Been playing it for about 20 years. And so here's the illustration. So imagine you're on the road. As long as you're on the road within the guardrails, you're fulfilling the Mosaic Covenant, right? But then you break off and go off a cliff. It's over at that point, you think, until a little guy with a cloud and a fishing reel comes and gets you and pulls you out of the sky and puts you back on the road. That's like the Abrahamic Covenant. And that's where the title for today's sermon comes from, Because of Grace. Because of the grace of God, the Jews can come before God today and renew this covenant because essentially they failed. They failed, and now the God of second chances and the God of grace has brought this remnant back, this chosen remnant of 40-something thousand Jews who can renew the covenant because of his grace, and the same is true for those of us who are in Christ today. So that is the introduction. In fact, you can see this great passage from 1 Timothy. Now, we were in Acts for about a year. That just ended at the beginning of the summer. I miss Paul. Who else misses Paul? That was fun going through Acts. Let's return to Paul here, and he says the very same thing about God's grace. Look, look how he describes his conversion and election. He says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, insolent opponent. He could have added murderer to that. But I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of the Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. You and I, if you're in Christ, if you're a Christian, can say the very same things today. 
praise God for his grace. Now, here's the, the big idea for this service. This will launch us into the text. After three weeks of discovering and celebrating God's grace, the people now engage in a time of worship, confession, and covenant renewal. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your grace. I mean, it's, it is amazing. We can't fathom it. We can think all day upon it, sing songs about it, and it's just too wonderful to think you would rescue us despite our sin. And while we, while we were your enemies, that as, as Robert read and, and shared, just the fact that you would take on our iniquities, our sin upon yourself, and because of that, we are free. Because of that, we are saved, and we'll never lose that. Because of your grace. Father, as we go through this text today, uh, those of us who are saved, encourage our hearts, remind us of grace, even in some cases, pull us out of the dark places we have gone away from you and renew us to you again. And if anyone in here who probably is, who doesn't know you, is not born again, Father, bring them initially into that new covenant with you through repentance and faith in the gospel of of our beloved Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. If you haven't already, please turn your Bibles to chapter 9 of Nehemiah. If you don't know where Nehemiah is, just find Psalms and then take a left, about two books, I think. Yeah, yeah, Job, Esther, Nehemiah, and you will arrive. So Nehemiah chapter 9, because of grace. And the sermon is divided into three parts. That's pretty common for me. And you'll see uh, kind of a a point slide up on the screen. So the first thing we're going to see them do is going to be worship. And I entitled this, Recounting Grace. Very similar to what Danny shared about the Ebenezer. They're going to recount God's grace. They're going to worship him for what he has done. And you might remember last week, after that first day of Tishri, and they heard the word of God for the very first time, their reaction was appropriate. It was sorrow and repentance. They were sad and broken before God. But that was the Feast of Trumpets. That was a day of celebration. So Nehemiah and Ezra and the guys said, hey, stop, we'll get to this. We'll, we'll have a time of confession, but now let's party. And they've been partying for three weeks because of God's grace and celebrating it. But now they've got back to that time. They've essentially picked up where they've left off to have that time of confession. Why? Because God does take sin seriously. And as I thought about this week, I remembered uh, probably the worst Thanksgiving in my family's life. It was uh, 1989, November 1989. I was a freshman in high school. And for a couple years, we would go to my uncle's house up near Orlando. He had this wooded lot, beautiful home, and we had some, uh, some great Thanksgivings there. But this year was different. And the reason is because one of my father's sons got so angry at my dad that he went after him in rage uh, because of a disagreement to the point where our stepmom had to restrain him and pull him off. I remember even hearing my grandma saying, what has gotten into him? And it, it seemed to destroy the whole weekend. But thankfully, we were able to overcome it. We were still able to celebrate and have a good Thanksgiving. Uh, but then the next week, of course, my dad would talk to the son and see what happened and, and you know, pick up where we had left off. And, and that's what I thought about with this. As we, as we saw them come and repent of their sin, then, then they were able to party and celebrate. Now they're getting back to dealing with that sinful issue. Now, the thing I didn't tell you was I was that son. That was me. And I've told you before I was saved as an adult. And you guys are like, man, who is this pastor of ours, right? Hide the kids. Who is this? I was a monster. And Christ saved me. And, and so I thought about that, though. I don't want to focus more on me, but really just that, that, that sinful sorrow happening, that brokenness. 
But hey, let's put that away for now. Let's celebrate. And now let's return later to dealing with that sin. And, and that's what's happening here. They're coming before, confessing and celebrating what God has done in the past. And we're going to see in chapter 9 a lot of times where Israel was not acting faithfully. Uh, they were like me as that child, very rebellious, very angry, very evil. And yet God was so gracious time and time again. So uh, let's look at the first five verses of chapter 9. We're not going to be able to read all of chapter 9 and 10. In fact, we're not going to read much at all. We're going to jump around and talk about and summarize the rest. But let's read verses 1 through 5 of Nehemiah chapter 9. Now on the 24th day of this month, that's Tishri, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. On the stairs were the Levites who stood, eight names, you can read them later, and they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Then the Levites Another list of eight names of Levites said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. So in this first five verse portion, we essentially get an introduction to this day, this 24th day. And so look with me at verses 1 and 2. Verses 1 and 2 is kind of the overhead 30,000-foot view, the wide-angle lens, a summary of this day. You see the people coming garbed with the garb of repentance. And uh, what, what sackcloth was was kind of goat, goat hair. Um, really what, what was happening here is the people should be naked before God. That's the point of it, but they can't be naked. That would be a sin as, as well. So the sackcloth was simply covering up the private parts, if you will. But the imagery here is that we are naked and we're as dirt before you, God. They understand now God's holiness, which reflects directly upon them as sinners, and they're humbled, they're on the ground. The red earth on their head is symbolizing just the very thing God created us out of. We're dirt. You're God, you're holy. We're dirt, we're nothing. This is the appropriate response to our sinfulness as God reveals it and shows it to us. It tells us that uh, they were separated, separated from the other nations. Uh, it's not that they were better than the other nations. The fact is, though, you had to be a Jew to go through this ceremony. You had to be a part of the covenant people of Israel. So they separated themselves from all foreigners, and they stood and confessed their sins. Now notice they confessed their sins and the sins of their fathers. So the Jews that had gone before them, their ancestors who had broken the Mosaic covenant. So those two verses just give us, again, that wide-angled lens view, 30,000 foot. Verse 3 zooms in a little bit closer, a little bit closer, and it tells us that this day had two parts. For a quarter of the day, uh, Ezra probably and the priest again read from the book of the law. This is like the ninth time we see them having this corporate service during the month of Tishri, reading from the book of the law. Uh, now, a quarter doesn't mean six hours. It actually means three hours. Now, there is a the Hebrew word for 24-hour. That's yom. But the idea here isn't the 24-hour day. It's daylight. It's daylight. So for a quarter of daylight, three hours, they read from the book of the law. That's all we hear, mainly because it was a repeat of Nehemiah chapter 8. No need to go into detail. 
But the second quarter of the day is where we're going to be in the rest of 9 and 10. And that's where they make confession and they worship their God. And then you see these Levites separated out into two groups of eight. Five of the names are the same in both groups. So uh, probably some of the Levites had double duty. Uh, How many of you are on a, a TCBR serve team? Kids, music, hospitality, first impressions. How many of you are on more than one serve team? Yeah, all the hands stayed up. That's welcome to church planning, right? That's all that's happening here. They're serving double duty, and they have roles in the worship service. They're the ones that now stand and lead the people in confession and in this time of worship. And so the third section is really verses 6 through 31. That zooms in all the way to what took place during that second three-hour period. And what they do is they recount grace, as the title of this section is. They recount God's grace. And I wish we had a lot of time to go through each one of these verses. My favorite passages in the the Bible are when, like, biblical history is recounted within the Bible. It's so cool. And this is one of those times. Now, uh, how uh, how many of you know why flamingos are pink? All right. Because of what they eat, right? They eat some sort of, I don't even know what it is. Thank you. And it turns them pink. So they're, they're essentially, they are what they eat, or at least they're colored by what they eat. And I thought about this this week as I looked, because these people have, have had the, the Old Testament read to them several days during this month. And now we're going to see all that had been coming in, all that they'd been eating, intaking, coming right back out. Coming right back out. And that's the hope for all of us who follow Christ. So What I did was I put a slide together to summarize verses 6 through 31. You'll see this up on the screen. And look at the order of the books of the Bible that they cover. In order, all these books of the Old Testament that they would have heard some of or readings from during these three weeks. And even just the the three hours prior to this. And you see from Genesis, beginning in verse 6, creation, the God of creation. You have to start there. And then you see the election of Abram. Abram was chosen by election to be the very first Jew. And then we see the Abrahamic covenant, which I mentioned earlier in there. And then verses 9 through 15, the second section, uh, all comes from the book of Exodus. You see uh, the Red Sea miracle as God leads them out. You see the pillar of smoke and fire that led them by day and by night. You see reference to the giving of the Mosaic law. So the second covenant that we also talked about earlier is in there. And then God providing manna from heaven. And then you get to verses 16 through 21. A lot of this comes from uh, the law, Leviticus, as well as Numbers and Deuteronomy. But you see that rebellion. You see the sin uh, over and over that despite all God has done for these, these Jews who he took out of Egypt, they continue to rebel. They continue to rebel. And, of course, the highlight there is the rebellion. That the KB is uh, Kadesh Barnea. That was Numbers 14 when the spies came back and gave a bad report. The people were just about to go into the promised land, but they didn't believe God. So he cursed them with 40 years in the, wander, in, the, in the wilderness to wander and essentially drop dead. And then you see Joshua mentioned where the promised land's delivered and all these good fruits that God told them that they would have, the milk and the honey they're now receiving. And then that final section, verses 26 to 31, a lot of that comes from Judges, as well as probably First and Second Chronicles, which was also written during the Nehemiah-Ezra time period, which is a summary of First Samuel, Second Samuel, First Kings, Second Kings, all the, really the, the cycle. Anyone ever hear about that cycle or learn about the cycle in Judges? 
That's what they're talking about, where, where the people rebel against God. God then judges them by allowing a nation to suppress them and enslave them. Then they cry out for mercy. God raises up a judge or a prophet to deliver them, and then it repeats itself over and over again. So all of this is in this great hymn or this great psalm. Scholars say that while there's poetry in here, uh, it, it is very much like a historical psalm, like Psalm 105, Psalm 106, Psalm 78. And even the uh, Septuagint, which is the uh, Greek version of the Old Testament, actually attributes this to Ezra. They say Ezra wrote it. The, the Hebrew version does not have that information, but very, he may very well have written this, this piece of poetry, historical poetry, for the people to engage in and read during worship. So really, there's your summary of the rest of chapter 9, and it's, it's a beautiful, beautiful thing that God has done. Now, a few application points when it comes to recounting grace. First and foremost, if you're a follower of Christ in here today, I exhort you and encourage you, do not let one day go by where you don't spend time recounting grace. What would your story be if, like Ezra, you wrote a piece of poetry like this through your life where God has graciously brought you to himself through the blood of Jesus Christ? Don't let a day go by. That's, that's what we mean by this devotion time, just starting out a day with God. And I would say that, that this is how you start prayer time every time, just like the Lord's Prayer, which we'll be learning about in a couple months. The very first thing, our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. The first thing should be worship. So don't let a day go by where you're not recounting the grace of God in your life about how God saved you as well as anything else he has done for you uh, since then. The second thing is, let's look back at a couple verses from this great chapter. Uh, I want to show you a few things. Look at verse 17 of chapter 9. Verse 17, the second part of it. But you are a God ready to forgive. I love that wording. You are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That is our God. Skip down to verse 31, the very end of that section. Look how uh, he ends this psalm in verse 31. For you are a gracious and merciful God. One of the things I love about this passage, as I mentioned over and over, it does a contrast between the people, how, how faithless they were, how rebellious they were, and then it would go right to, but God was merciful, but God was gracious. My friends, we serve a God who is ready, standing at the ready to grant you and I forgiveness. Whether it's those of you who are lost or those of us who are saved, who continually get ourselves in the ditch with our own sin, be encouraged. Don't stay in the darkness. Come back out into the light. Our God stands ready to forgive. Uh, the second thing I want to point your, your attention to as well is uh, verses 26 and 30. Look at 26 when it describes the sin of the people of Israel. It says they cast God's law behind their back. Just imagine that, that imagery there. They, God gave them his word. He gave them everything that they should have been doing. And they took his word and cast it behind their back. Not only that, he sent prophets to warn them of his coming wrath, and they killed the prophets. The living word, essentially, coming through their mouths. We have to be a people who don't put God's word behind our back. Even as we recount grace, each day we should be intaking Scripture, filling ourselves with His Word. So like those, those flamingos will be bright pink for the glory of God. Don't let yourself, as believers, cast His Word. And if you're not a believer, 
read it. That's where it all began for me, as you know, picking up a New Testament at the age of 21 and reading it for the first time. Let us not cast his word behind our back. I have another slide up here really quick. This, this is for those of us who are believers. You've, you've heard my four R's of salvation, and they're kind of in here as well, but they're for us too. They're for us too. We need the gospel each and every day, just as much as the day we got saved. Not to get saved again. That's just a one-time thing. But to renew us. We don't ever move on from the gospel. So if, if you're dealing with sin, this is kind of what God still provides for us and how we should respond. He gives us revelation. It's his word that opens our eyes to the darkness we're allowing in our lives. And the, the hope is that we'll pay attention to that when we see it, when we hear it in a sermon or in a song or, or from, from a friend's exhortation. And then that we would recognize, truly recognize that. That's a gift of God, recognition that should bring about understanding, full clarity as to our sin and his faithfulness. And then he grants repentance, even for those of us who are believers. We need that, that we would confess and then apply the gospel of grace to our lives as well. And then finally, instead of salvation for us, because we're already saved, that renewal, that continual need for renewal that we who are already saved need each and every day. And that leads to recommitment and obedience like we're seeing today with the people of God. So I wanted to give that to you and, and just remind you that here at the Church of Blue Ridge, yes, we're about seeing lost people get saved and taking the gospel to where it isn't, but we're also about helping those, who, those of you who are already saved getting out of the sinful ditches that you get yourself into. Now, how do I know that? Because I'm a sinner too, and I get myself into those sinful ditches, and I'm an expert at it. And so we're here to help you guys as well. So don't be afraid to come. An invitation, it's not just for lost people, it's for believers. We're here to be about God's rescue. All right, so let's move on to the second section. And, and just like last week, that was the longest part, that very first section. So we'll move a little bit quicker through the next two. So after recounting grace, uh, we, we get to the present day, as we'll see in verse 32. And I just put this refrain here, restore us again. That's essentially what this new generation of Jews are saying. God, as you have continually restored your people in the past, despite their sin, Oh, won't you restore us too? Restore us again. And this serves as the time of confession for the people of God here. So pick up in verse 32, and uh, we'll continue reading. Now, therefore, our God, so you see that now, therefore, so the, the hymn is ended, it's now to the present day. Because of all this, now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, the awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardships seem little to you that has come upon us, our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Now, what do they mean there when they say, let not the hardships seem little to you? What they're saying is, God, again, restore us. Restore us. Don't, don't think this is a light thing. This has been hard on us. We need your help. It's a cry of confession. It's a cry of God's mercy. They're hoping that that mercy that God continually gave to their ancestors despite their sin, there's still some of that left for us too. We need that mercy. It's an attitude and posture, again, of repentance as they're sitting there in their sackcloth and their ashes on their head. Continuing in verse 33. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them. Even in their own kingdom, enjoying your great goodness that you gave them, 
And in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Behold, now, look at us, we are slaves this day in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves and its rich yield goes to the king whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress. Look at this quote up on the screen from famed uh, Torah expert Tamara Eskenazi. Having read the book of the Torah, the people demonstrate a new competence, a new understanding of what they have read, and prove able to translate these into commitment and action. It's because of God's word and God's grace that they come to this place. And there's so much here. Look at verse 33. That, my friends, is a sign of a healthy understanding of who God is and who we are. Look who gets the blame. They recognize that God has sovereignly brought all of this about, but it's not his fault. It's their fault. Saying, it's on us, God. You have been righteous. You have dealt faithfully with us. This is all because of us, all of our circumstances. There's no complaint in this passage towards God or even to the Persian kings. They completely recognize that we deserve every single thing that's happened to us. But they're just so thankful that they have a second chance. Even there in the sackcloth and the ashes with the earth on their head, sitting in a city that's barely able to have a house and anyone living in it, they're so thankful for his grace because of grace. Notice the contrast here. It's amazing. They don't get their ancestors. They're like, man, they had it good. They had it all. They had the milk and the honey and the fruit. They were mighty empire with armies and cities and a giant kingdom, and yet they've rebelled against you. Why is that the case? Why is it when we are in a time of feast, even as Christians, that we so easily forget about God? We so easily start to allow sin in our life and, and compromise and say, yeah, that's okay. That's not so bad. Why does it take brokenness for us to see clearly like the Jews do right here? I don't know. That's just the way it is with sin. But aren't you glad that we have grace? That in those times, and I don't know if you're like me, but it's been those times of brokenness when God takes almost everything away, that I've had to, to get it, finally wakes me up to my sin. And that's what happens here. Look what, they say. Look what they say in verse 36. They had it so good and rejected you, but look at us today. We are slaves. Now, I imagine any type of slavery is horrible. But I, I think there's probably a difference. You know, being, being a slave in a foreign land is one thing, right? That's bad enough. But can you imagine being a slave in your own land? where you once were free? Could you imagine that if that day came here where uh, you know, some other country came and took us over and now we're their slaves, but then you're, you're looking around saying, man, I remember being free to go do this and that or shop here and there, and now I'm a slave to this other nation. Could you even imagine what that's like? And all this milk and honey and fruit, they're sending 40% of it to King Artaxerxes. Yeah, that's, that's what scholars say was the tax rate back then, about 40%. Of all the produce that they farmed, boom. Oh, by the way, some people in our country want socialism. That's what this would be. 
We would, we would be able to sit here just like these guys and say, we're slaves in our own land. Don't let them fool you. Don't let them fool you. Anyway, it's not going to get into politics. But you see here, you see here the confession. You see the contrite brokenness. In fact, turn to Psalm 51. Robert read an incredible passage and really set me up today by, by referencing Psalm 51. Just look at the, few, the first few verses. And I, I encourage you folks, bookmark Psalm 51. If you're a sinner like me, which you are, Maybe not as bad, but you're a sinner like me. You need Psalm 51 on a regular basis. This is the psalm that David wrote uh, after God opened his eyes about his hypocrisy and his sin concerning Bathsheba, right? After the prophet Nathan came in and tore him up. You are that man that he wrote this. And it's the most beautiful prayer of confession and honesty there is in the Bible. And just look at the first few verses. Have mercy on me. Now, Now, keep in mind, David just like broke all 10 commandments like at once. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned. We could go on and on. I encourage you, finish reading it. It is incredible. Now turn back. Don't stay there. Turn back to Nehemiah 9 and 10. And uh, we just have a few... uh, few uh, application points here, and then we'll move on to what's next. Oh yeah, here we go. I'm sorry, I lost my place. That happens sometimes. The first thing is, just like with the daily recounting of grace, don't let a day go by, if you're a Christian, where daily you're not confessing your sin. And if you don't have sin to confess, you're probably not a Christian. You're still in denial, and you're still prideful. But it is so healthy. I mean, every morning, I do this. I get up, I read scripture first, and then I recount God's grace. And then I go through the day before, and as best as I can remember, I ask God forgiveness for the specific things I have done. It's important that we keep our sins forgiven up to date. Now, the the beauty is because of the gospel, all those sins have already been forgiven once and for all at the cross and applied at the moment of our salvation. But nonetheless, it is a healthy, healthy discipline. The second thing is, you'll notice that God has forgiven these people. That's the implication, right? He has forgiven them. He has washed away their sins. He's the one responsible for this whole renewal service in Israel, right? But what hasn't gone away? Their consequences. The consequences of their sins still remain. And that is true sometimes for you and I. God forgives us. Yes, he forgives us. But then there's the consequences that we still have to live with. Sometimes God takes those away or he lessens them, but sometimes they might stick around for your whole life. It's just reality. It's part of this life because, again, this isn't our home. When you're saved, your home is now heaven, right? And the, the consequences that he allows to stick around that just bother us, we wish he would take those away, the thorn in the flesh, God uses that to humble us and teach us and grow us under his grace. Look what Paul says here in 2 Corinthians 12. This is about that thorn in the flesh that, that he had. Some think it was a problem with his eyes that goes all the way back to the road to Damascus uh, with the bright light. We don't know for sure, but look what he says here. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me, the thorn. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me for the sake of Christ. Then I am content with weaknesses. Content. Can you imagine that? Content with insults, hardships, 
persecutions and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Friends, this generation of Jews, despite their weakness, were so much stronger than the Jews who had the mighty armies and King David at their head. Because of their weakness, they are strong. And the same is true for us in the face of those consequences of our sin. So learn to be faithful regardless of your circumstances, right? God doesn't owe us anything. The fact that he has saved us is amazing. It's everything. Make sure you don't fall into some sort of Christian entitlement, all right? We have a responsibility to worship God, to be obedient, and to walk with him regardless of our circumstances. Whatever he allows to stay there, whatever thorns in the flesh, it's not about you and it's not about me. It's all about him and his glory. That rhymed. That was pretty cool. Look at this, these lyrics from this song. Talk about rhyming. This is from a group called Cutlass. I don't know if they wrote this song, but the name of the song is I'm Still Yours. And for years, this one section of the song really convicted me. What if he took it all away? Would I still worship him like I do when I have everything? If you washed away my vanity, if you took away my words, if all my world was swept away, would you be enough for me? Would my beating heart still sing? I hope the answer is yes for me. I really do, and I hope the answer is yes for you. But, but let that song encourage you, let it convict you, and let us be able to stand with our Jewish brethren back 2,500 years ago to be able to worship God like this despite the fact their lives were in ruins and their lives actually belonged to a Persian king. All right, so our final section that we'll see is covenant renewal. And, and don't worry, this won't take long, even though it's an entire chapter. We're going to go through it really quick. Uh, it's chapter 10. And again, everything's been leading up to this moment. This is when they renew their covenant with God. And it begins actually at the end of chapter 9, 938. Because of all this, they now say. So everything that's happened in the month of Tishri, especially this time of worship we've had today. And, and really, you can sum up all of Nehemiah 9 with, with just the fact that God has remained faithful while the people have not. Because of all this, because of all this, we now make a firm covenant in writing on the sealed documents and the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. Now, the word covenant is actually not the Hebrew word for covenant. It's the Hebrew word for promise, which is what a covenant is. It's a promise. Think, uh, we've got newlyweds here, getting ready, or soon to be newlyweds here. Think about those marriage vows, right? To death do us part, for sickness and in health, better or for worse. A covenant is a promise, and God's covenant is a promise he makes with us. Now, the people are making it to God. This is a rebuilding of the Mosaic Covenant now, that, that one covenant I described. They're essentially building the building back up. And uh, what, how we know this is a real covenant is the verb make. The, ver, the verb make there is literally to cut, right? And only covenants were cut. That was the language, to cut a covenant. Now, we, as we skip to chapter 10, you'll see the first 27 verses is a list of all the, uh, the family names or the individuals who signed this covenant. Nehemiah is first, then we see 22 priests, then we see 18 Levites, and then we see 44 heads of families. So every name on here is either an actual person or it's a family name from the list in Ezra 2 and Nehemiah 7, the people who came back with Zerubbabel, and they're signing it to God uh, at this day. Now you skip down to verse 28, uh, 28 and 29, uh, here we see the rest of the people signing it as well. This is the general obligation of this covenant, the heart of it. 
And uh, they're all signing it. And look what they say to God. It says, or look what it says to us. They separated themselves from the peoples of the, the lands to the law of God. And look who else has signed. Not just the men, but the wives, the sons, the daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding. The covenant was for everyone. Even the children are signing the covenant. Those who can understand. You might remember that passage in <clears throat> excuse me, Matthew 19 where the children want to come to Jesus and the disciples are like, no, stay away. And God says, whoa, you let the children come to me. The kingdom of God belongs to them as well. And here we see children signing the covenant. What was the covenant? It was to make this oath, to enter into a curse and an oath. That's how we know it was the Mosaic covenant. Again, it was bilateral. Uh, it was either a curse if they didn't obey or it was blessing, oath if they did obey. And then you see the verbs there. What was their responsibility? What was it that they were promising God? And here it is in verse 29, to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do. So we have three key verbs. The main one is to walk. Well, what does it mean to walk? The other two tell us what it means to walk, to observe God's law and to do it. Simple, to observe God's law and to do it. If we can do that, then we will fulfill God's covenant. So there you see the heart of the covenant. There you see the heart of the renewal. Uh, they're picking back up where faithless Israel fell off. And then finally, the last uh, nine verses, verses 30 through 38, I put them up here on the screen. And this is uh, really a summary of their specific obligations. They also happen to mention that we're not going to have mixed marriages, Okay. Uh, what that means there, it doesn't mean a black person marrying a white person. Like, unfortunately, legalists use this passage right here in Greenville many decades ago to say you can't have interracial marriage. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about apostasy. You, the followers of God, cannot be unequally yoked with a lost person, a pagan, because guess what? You'll be a pagan eventually. So that's what it's talking about there. We will not marry into uh, families of other religions. Uh, the Sabbath observation is in there, giving of the temple tax, as well as offering of the first fruit. So they were to give both in cash and in kind. The temple tax was the cash. And then the first fruit, uh, uh, giving again the first of the flock, even the firstborn of their children were available. The first of the dough, not money, although that would be really cool, but actual bread was all to go to the Levites. And that's how the Levites lived, by the tithe, the 10%. Uh, given. And then the Levites were to tithe their 10% and give it to the priest because the priests were a lot smaller group, only Aaron's family. And so those are just the specific stipulations uh, of this group. So again, a couple application points and then we'll be done. Uh, first one is something we see there in the specific obligation that we don't talk about a lot here at the Church of Blue Ridge, but it's very important, and that is giving. All right, the expectation is if you're a member of the Church of Blue Ridge, that you will give financially to the work of the Lord through this church, right? Now, we are not legalistic about how much. For us, it's the practice of giving. It's the regularity of giving that's so important. Why? Because it's part of your worship. It's part of your worship. And as, as pastors, it's important that we call all of, of God's children who are part of our church to obedience in worship. And this is a very important Part. It, it is so crucial and so key. So when we say give, it's not so we could have our coffers filled. It's because we know the work that is going to happen in your life as you're trusting God with everything. Again, amount doesn't, doesn't matter. So I would say here, if you're a member of the church or you're part of this church and you're not giving, start giving, even if it's a few dollars. 
Just develop the habit. Because what you're saying when you give is, God, I acknowledge it all comes from you. And I trust that you're going to provide for my needs. So here, I'm going to give to the church. So even if it's a little bit, I think what I, what I usually teach people is 10%. Obviously, it was very clear in the Old Testament. That's what the word tithe means, a tenth. 10% for some is a good starting place. For others, it's a good goal. And we, again, err on the side of grace. So we're more, more concerned with the habit of giving as opposed to the amount. And you might say, Pastor, that's easy for you to say. Well, listen, I will share with you to the glory of God that when I lost my job as a pastor in 2006, it was the day the crocodile hunter was killed. I'll never forget, Labor Day. I lost my job, and uh, I was unemployed for a year as a pastor. And I was working more hours, two jobs I was working, and I was still going into the hole $1,000 a month. We lost every, God took it all. And yet we didn't stop giving what he had put on our heart to give. And that was the hardest thing I'd ever done. But guess what? He completely restored us and has blessed us beyond where we were then. So I can tell you he is faithful. Trust him and give. Even if it means, from your point of view, it means going into the red. It's never going into the red with God. In fact, I would say that whatever's keeping you from giving, he's actually allowing that because he's going to get the money some way. He's going to teach you. And if you don't trust him with money, he's going to provide several lessons to teach you and break you. And look what he says in Malachi 3. By the way, Malachi was written during Ezra and Nehemiah, so a lot of the same stuff that you see in Ezra and Nehemiah, you'll see in Malachi. And this is right after he accuses the people of robbing him, so robbing God. God says, bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is more need. He's saying that to them. He's saying that to you right now if you're struggling to test God financially. Put me to the test and watch what I do. Watch what I do. So really important there. And then uh, one final thing I want to do, this won't take long, but I have here the Church of Blue Ridge Membership Covenant. This is what we're going to end with. Take one and pass those back. This is uh, what members get when uh, they go through our Connections class. Robert gives every member a copy. There's only about 20, so some of you might have to share. But Robert will give everybody that attends our Connections class a copy of our covenant, and if they feel God's leading them to join our church, and they want to proceed in the process. As many of you know, we don't go fast with membership. We take our time and intentionally. They then sign it. Now, I've X'd out the signature part. But here's our covenant. We became a church a year ago next week. In fact, as you'll hear later, we're having our birthday party next week. This is our covenant. And if we're going to read about people in the Bible renewing their covenant with God, then those of us who are members of the Church of Blue Ridge, or even those of you who are onboarding as members, it's important that we see the things that we have promised to do together. And so I thought it would be really great just to remind you all of this covenant. Uh, I will allow you to, to read it on your own time, and I would encourage you, if you're a member of the church or God, you feel God's leading you to be a member, you're in the process, take this home today you, your family, and read through it. And you'll, you'll see the things that God calls us to. And we can look at that last part. He says, where we sign our name, we say, I now solemnly and joyfully enter into this covenant. Again, a promise. And with the Lord's help, I submit to the vision and the mission of the Church of Blue Ridge by pursuing the following, the glory of his kingdom, obedience to his scriptures, participation in his community, the completion of his mission. This is who we are. 
And it's because of God's grace that we can even begin to come together as a people to fulfill his great commission. I'm going to invite the band to come back up. And they're going to lead us in our final worship song here in a few moments. But let's have a time of prayer here to end with. And uh, again, the invitation is always open at the Church of Blue Ridge. Whether you're not sure where you stand with God and you want to talk to us about the gospel, salvation, you can talk to us today, through the week. The invitation is always open. But even those of you who are believers, who are church members, the invitation is open to you. If you're struggling with something, maybe something on the covenant, you're like, man, I'm not fulfilling this promise. Maybe what I said about giving or some other area. Again, come and talk to us. We're here to help rescue you. And we need to be rescued continually ourselves. So it's all about grace. And that's what we try to err on here at the Church of Blue Ridge. But as we pray now, let's specifically pray based on what we've seen today. The recounting of God's grace and the importance of confession each and every day. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we we come before you today. Thank you for this passage. Thank you for... Uh, this time in Nehemiah that we've had. We've, we've had some big chunks of scripture to go through each week, but thank you for your faithfulness in helping us to have continuity with your covenant people uh, back in the Old Testament times. And seeing a lot of this today, we need ourselves. The gospel is in Nehemiah chapter 9 and 10. It's in it. It's, it's, you haven't changed a thing. We, we still need to come before you each and every day and be renewed by your grace of what you've done and choosing and saving us in Christ Jesus. So, Lord, help each of us who are believers, who are church members, if we're not already doing it, to develop this habit of recounting grace each and every day, thinking of the gospel, remembering how you saved us and when, and even the, the great men and women of God that you put in our lives to help in that process. Father, and also, Lord, as we come and remember the gospel, as we remember our salvation, we ask that you would help us to have a tender heart before you, a contrite spirit, that we would seek your forgiveness and confess our sins daily with no guilt, with no doubt about the answer, because in Christ, all the promises of God are yes, and you have forgiven those sins already, Lord. And if there's anyone here who doesn't know you or Christians who are struggling because of sin, Father, I pray your grace will be poured out upon them even today and that they would have the courage to come and talk to one of us here at the Church of Blue Ridge so we could be tools in your hands. We ask all of this because of and in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ.